0: Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful uh, to be gathered here this morning to learn uh, about you and to worship you and to give you the praise and the honor and the adoration that is rightly your due. And Lord, we want to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we pray that you would help us to engage our minds uh, as we think critically about your word and about uh, history and how uh, you have made Yourself known and left every single person in the world without excuse. And Lord, we want to bring that evidence, those proofs to bear on the lives of, of those who don't know You and confront them with the truth that You are the one true God and that You have a claim on their lives and that uh, not only have they not lived up to the, the claim that You require from them, but even uh, even better, Lord, the good news that You've made a way for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to you. So help us, Lord, to understand your truth, to understand the gospel, and to be able to communicate that to others in a helpful and clear way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about evidentialism in general and proofs of the resurrection in specific. And I I don't assume that any of you are familiar with that term, but uh, is anybody? does that ring a bell for anyone just curious of yeah, I know what evidentialism is talking about. No worries. I I wasn't necessarily expecting people to. But evidentialism is an approach to apologetics. And the reality is that there's not just apologetics. Like most things, when you get into the weeds a little bit more, you find that there's different schools of thought, different approaches to the apologetic endeavor. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the distinctions between different schools of thought within apologetics, but I at least wanted to bring it forth and, and so that you're aware of it. And, and there's at least three, there's more, but there's three kind of major branches. There's classical apologetics, uh, and generally classical apologetics uh, uses theistic arguments such as the ones that we've been looking at, the cosmological argument, uh, the teleological argument, a moral argument and some things like that. So they argue from general revelation to try to show that there's good reasons to believe that there is a God and then they go from general revelation to specific revelation, distinguishing why Christianity is the most reasonable and the most compelling account for what you know what God created this world. So that's classical apologetics, long history, goes back at least a thousand years at least formally, and then there's also presuppositional apologetics. I should mention some some names. So all the way back would be like Thomas Aquinas uh, in classical apologetics. More recently, R.C. Sproul, that would be his approach. William Lane Craig would generally be in that camp, uh, although we'll be talking a little bit about him today as well. But then there's presuppositional apologetics, and this is most common in Reformed circles. It was an approach developed by a guy named Cornelius Van Til, if that sounds familiar at all, about a hundred years ago. And presuppositionalism does not appeal to theistic proofs or arguments or evidences the way that classical or evidentialism does. There is built upon what's called a transcendental argument, which we're going to talk about next week. But it basically just says, wait, wait, wait. All thought, logic, Science, morality is dependent upon the God of Scripture. Like you can't have any of the necessary preconditions for a rational discussion that we're having unless you have a God who is wise and eternal and unchanging. So they they would simply argue that, you know, the very means by which you are making an argument against Christianity you are standing on the foundation of Christianity to make that argument. So, and there's theological convictions that distinguish them as well, but we'll talk about that more next week. And then there's also, what's called evidential apologetics. So the evidentialist is similar to classical apologetics in that they're trying to reason, find common ground with the unbeliever and say, okay, let's look at the evidence and, and then try to derive what the best conclusion for that is. Uh, but unlike classical, they're gonna go directly to the directly to the historical evidences, whether it's prophecies or usually the the key point is the resurrection of Jesus. That's at the center. And so the evidentialist just says, well, why should we worry about a two-step approach? Why should we have all these other discussions, why don't we just prove the resurrection and then we, you know, it's checkmate. Uh, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then that confirms uh, our argument. But the evidentialist is assuming a lot more of the unbeliever than the the, the presuppositionalist is. So they're assuming that, that we're going to stand side by side as objective, unbiased, you know, observers of the evidence and we're going to actually follow where the evidence leads. And, and we know theologically why we would have you know, reasons to doubt that, that anyone is unbiased or that, that anyone is a fair, objective observer. But anyways, in, in this camp, uh, you, guys, you have guys like Lee Strobel, if you're familiar with The Case for Christ, Josh McDowell, and there's others as well, uh, Gary Habermas, uh, and, and William Lane Craig also emphasizes the resurrection too, but that would still be in his two-step approach. And so I just wanted to broadly familiarize you with these. And, and maybe you want to pursue that on your own further. And so you, you kind of have a lay of the land of like, what, what are these different fields of apologetics? And, and how do they, how are they distinguished from one another? And you might also ask like, what, where do you fall in terms of what would be your approach? Now I would say generally I'd be in the classical school of thought. I would probably be least, the farthest away from the, the evidential. That would probably, not that I think it's wrong. I mean, we're we're going to be looking at evidences for the resurrection today, uh, but that's just probably not where I would fall. Uh, I think it's easier for the unbeliever to get out of those, to squirm out of those arguments than in other things that I think are just compelling, like moral absolutes and I think cosmological argument. I, I think I find those compelling, but I at least want to familiarize you with the the discussion. So, what are the historical argument, uh, where where does that center? It centers on the resurrection of Christ. Like, other things are going to be discussed. You, you can go into archaeology of the Old Testament and proving that the scriptures are reliable historical uh, witnesses and things like that. But ultimately, it's going to center on the resurrection of Christ. So, I just want to begin by establishing a biblical foundation, like like I've done every week, of where in scripture do we... Do we see this emphasized why should we care about this? And uh, this is an obvious one. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 15 is the key place and it really highlights that the resurrection is the central claim of Christianity. If you don't have the resurrection as a historical reality then you don't have anything. Christianity is meaningless apart from the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't have that then you don't have Christianity. And that's distinguished from other religions, which many of them are just you know wise sayings, proverbial wisdom, and things like that. They're not rooted in historical facts. Uh, and that's distinct from Christianity, which anchors its significance, anchors all its value in the reality that something did or did not happen. And Paul highlights this in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you want to turn there, uh, I don't have it up on the screen, so, or you can pull it up on your phone. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19. Would someone be willing to read that out for us nice and loud? 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ perish. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, most of all people, most pitied. Yeah. And I find it so interesting that it's clear from the context that the attack against the resurrection is coming not from outside the church, but from within the church. And this is a total side note, but this is why when people say they appeal to the early church as this golden era of perfect purity and holiness within the church where all things were right. It's like, well, that doesn't even... It's not even corroborated by the New Testament itself. <laughs> Already within the New Testament, you read Revelation 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches, uh, you read all of 1 Corinthians, you see that there is major problems within the early church. So just to say, it's people idealized the, the early church as this perfect, golden, pure era. But it wasn't. This is... People inside the church, how is it that some of you are saying that there's no resurrection from the dead? And Paul has to combat this because, and just highlight, just because something is early doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't take very long for serious errors to creep into the church within uh, the the era, the New Testament era. Uh, So verse 12 says, how can you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But Paul responds, if there's no resurrection, then that means not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And then Paul doubles down uh, on that in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So there's just no category, clearly, uh, in scripture for somebody who says, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ. But I just don't believe in all that supernatural stuff. Or I just don't believe in, you know, the resurrection and all all these things. But I still believe, you know, Jesus was a whatever, good moral teacher or this or that. It's clear that Paul says if you don't affirm and hold to the resurrection as a historical reality in the past and a coming reality in the future for the, the general resurrection, then it's vain. It's futile. Your faith is meaningless. Yeah, the validity and significance of the gospel rises and falls on this one thing. Whether or not Jesus really did rise from the dead. And if he didn't, who cares? You know, why bother with Christianity if that's the case? Why bother with denying yourself or taking up your cross, saying no to your flesh? Why bother with doing anything at all that hinders you from gratifying the passions of your flesh? And this is actually where Paul goes in his argument, in this very text, later on, uh, in verse 30, uh, I'll just read it. He says, you know, he's reasoning with them along these lines. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ, Jesus, Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And this, this is a side note, but this is part of the reason why I'm not a big fan of people saying, well... You know, even if God isn't, well, for Christians to say, even if God isn't real, then who cares? You know, I've lived a good life, and it's all good by me. And, well, that's that's not Paul's attitude, clearly. He actually concludes the opposite in verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If, however, Christ is raised from the dead, which, of course, Paul argues he is, then This one fact must change and shape our whole life. And the the direction of what we do, where we're going, how we think, uh, all of our time and energy and affections are uprooted and shifted by this reality that Christ has been raised from the dead. And I often speak this way to unbelievers too. I say, you know, if the things I'm saying are not true, then who cares? Like None of this matters. None of this is binding upon you. But if it is true then this is the, most, the single most significant issue that you will ever think about, that you will ever make a decision concerning about who Christ is and whether or not he's actually raised from the dead. This will determine your whole eternal destiny if it is true. And you owe it to yourself to at least give the, what I'm saying to you the time of day. At least give it consideration. At least read a gospel, the gospel of John. At least do something to consider these things. Uh, because if what I'm saying is not true, then it doesn't matter. And I can see that to you. But if it is, this is the most significant thing that you can ever consider. And so I want to press that upon people in in a similar manner that Paul is saying. that, If it's not true, then who cares? But if it is, then let us give our lives to it. So, how do apologists typically frame the discussion around the historical evidence for the resurrection? And I would say whether it's Lee Strobel in the case for Christ uh, or William Lane Craig or Gary Habermas, it usually surrounds a handful of historical or well-attested-to events and then saying, so establishing we have these four events that are well-attested to surrounding the resurrection. Now, what is the best explanation for those events? How do we account for those series of events? And of course, the contention of the apologists is to say, the best explanation, the most reasonable and rational, is, in fact, that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And so, <clears throat> what are those well-attested to events? Different guys would, would summarize them differently. They, they kind of package them differently. But they're, they're all basically the same thing. There's a lot of overlap between them, regardless of the apologists that you, you look at. So, this is the way Lee Strobel does it. It's easy to memorize. They're all E's. Uh, so, you have execution, uh, early tradition, empty tomb, and eyewitnesses. Gary Abermoss uses five facts. William Lane Craig uh, talks about four facts. So they're, they're all, it's a lot of overlap between them. And uh, we'll kind of go back between Lee Strobel and William Lane Craig just in the way that framing the, the discussion. And William Lane Craig always begins, whether he's in debates, if you watch him in debate, or if he gives uh, talks at, at universities. He always says, these are not contested events. If you read the scholarship, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, they're going to affirm these things. uh, Namely, in the way he talks about it, that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea, that after, three days later, his tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers, that different individuals experienced Appearances of Jesus and that the original disciples believed that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. So those are not saying they happened, but that that is what they claimed to have happened. (laughs) These disciples claimed to have seen Jesus and that they proclaimed that Jesus was risen from the dead. So let's just begin going through these. So number one, execution. Obviously, we have a lot of accounts from the, the scriptures. But what, in the evidentialist approach, you're kind of conceding that uh, I'm going to try to play by on your terms uh, to the, the skeptic or the unbeliever. And so, so okay, you don't want me to, to talk about scripture as authoritative. But what about Tacitus? So this is Tacitus. He was a uh, Roman historian. Uh, this comes from the Annals, book 15. He was writing about what Nero did in response to the great fire of Rome. Uh, And so he says, Consequently, uh, to get rid of the report that Nero, that it was his fault, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Uh, I'll just read on, I couldn't fit it. He says accordingly, an arrest was was first made of all who pleaded guilty, then upon their information an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city As of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs, perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. So again, Tacitus is talking about what happened in the events following the great fire of Rome and how Nero blamed the Christians. And he just makes a a passing remark about the origins of this group called Christians. Uh, and it's important to note a, a few things. One, that Christus is Latin for Christ, in case that's not clear. Uh, number two, he says, this as a passing remark, that he suffered the extreme penalty under Pontius Pilate, which in a Roman context obviously refers to crucifixion. And probably the most significant one, if you're going to talk with someone, is that Tacitus is not a believer. Huh. He is not a Christian. He is not sympathetic towards Christianity Uh, He's not even neutral towards Christianity. He calls Christianity a most mischievous superstition. He calls them a class hated for their abominations. He categorizes Christianity along with things hideous and shameful and the practice, practicing of it as being guilty of hatred against mankind. So, this is not, you know, the Gospel of Mark. (laughs) He is very opposed to Christianity. So, scholars who don't believe who are not Christian, who don't believe in God, who don't believe in the supernatural claims of Scripture, agree that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person who was crucified. Uh, Like, If the historicity of Jesus as a person cannot be established, then we can't know anything about the ancient world. And so, this is clear that Jesus was crucified. This is just one example. I'm just walking through these. And the next one, early tradition. So, interestingly, the most significant Piece of data in terms of this debate, this discussion, comes not from the Gospels but from 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 6. Would anyone like to read that for us?
1: For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, whom most are still alive, though some have fallen asleep.
0: Yeah, and sorry, he goes on in verse 7 and says, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And you might initially think, well, why would this be important or helpful, and it just discussion with an unbeliever if they're already rejecting Scripture. But one of the significant things about 1 Corinthians 15 is that it confirms, even for a secular audience, that the resurrection of Jesus was not a myth that developed generations later, There's hundreds of years later or multiple generations later. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Uh, and, and this language of delivered and received reflects that this was a creedal statement of the early church, like all scholars, whether they're church theologians or just historians, secular scholars, this framing is a language of a tradition uh, that has been established. Uh, Paul says, "I receive, I delivered what I also received." So even prior, this is a significant part, even prior to the writing of 1 Corinthians, which is dated around 50. So, even prior to that, there is already an established, creedal, doctrinal statement concerning the, the heart of Christianity and the heart of the gospel. Uh, this is something that is widely circulated. It's well established. He's saying it as if you know, they already know this is commonplace in the Christian community even before 50 AD. And, and most scholars would say that Paul received this form a creedal kind of statement when he visited the apostles in Jerusalem, uh, which would have been you know just, just a few years after Jesus was crucified. Uh, but the point is that even if you look at the book of 1 Corinthians as nothing more than an artifact of history, it's clear that there was doctrinal clarity about Jesus as the Messiah, that he died for sins, was buried, he rose from the grave, and he appeared... To his disciples. That, that at least was the, the doctrinal consensus. And if somebody said, well, I, I, that's coming from the Bible. It's like, well, <laughs> this is still an artifact of history, and, and all scholars, whether they're believers or not believers, agree that this is written by Paul around this time. Uh, this is not a fabrication of the Council of Nicaea or something ridiculous, which, for some reason, everybody thinks that everything happened at the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> uh, but so, so it's common, you know, to hear people say things like, well, I think Jesus was a good teacher, uh, and eventually there was, you know, myth and and legend that just kind of began to develop as people told and retold stories, and, and eventually he became this a god, and, and he was raised from the dead, uh, but it wasn't reflective of, of his actual ministry or, or what his first followers would have thought his ministry was about, and you would point to 1 Corinthians 15 and say actually there is a uniform tradition that even predated the writing of this letter uh, that all the early followers of Jesus, and this is accepted by unbelievers and believing scholarship, that they believe that Jesus was the Savior of mankind who died to atone for sin, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead. So it's not actually a development of something that happened much, much later. uh, Hundreds of years later that was just story upon story being told and retold. Uh, that, that doesn't accord with history, and it's not what even secular scholarship think. I mean, so that was going to
1: happen, I feel like it would have been like Caesar or something, who like proclaimed he was God.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, mo- that's what most people say is that like, no, it was Constantine, and, but that's at the Council of Nicaea, but that's just not, that's not <laughs> historical. Um, but William Lane Craig highlights that it was Joseph of Arimathea's grave And that's significant because it was a known gravesite. And for the skeptic, he points out, this is why these kind of arguments, I think, would be often easy for them to squirm out of, but he points out that there's no way that the early Christian community is making up the fact that Joseph of Arimathea came to bury the body of Jesus. Why? Because he was part of the Sanhedrin. Uh, This is part of the class of people, the group of 70 Pharisees that condemned Jesus and had him crucified. Uh, there's no reason for the early community of disciples to make up a fictional character from the Sanhedrin who hated Jesus and who were always in conflict with Jesus uh, as coming and serving Jesus. And I mean, even the early church, the Jews were continuing to persecute them. So uh, it's just beyond belief to, to think that they're going to create this fictional. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, in which you know, who who takes Jesus' body and has him honorably buried. But uh, the next one is empty tomb. So after the resurrection, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his woman followers. This is the fact that William Craig, Lane Craig would present. And the gospels present that the first witnesses of the resurrection were not in fact apostles, but women. And even worse, it was Mary Magdalene. Uh, and this might not seem that significant to us, but in a culture where, as Josephus says, the testimony of women would not even be accepted in court, it is significant because they would never again make up the story that it was the, these women followers of Jesus who were the first witnesses of the resurrection, let alone Mary Magdalene, who had a very checkered past and who had been demon-possessed, and it's interesting because even the disciples, that's how they first respond when they hear this testimony that Jesus is raised from the dead from the women. Uh, if you read in Luke 24, it's, uh, I'll just read it for you, Luke 24.10. It says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary of Mary the mother of James, and the other women who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So again, it's one of those situations where... Yes, we're, we're looking at, at Scripture, but the disciples would never make this up uh, as a, a detail that the women, not the apostles, not the disciples, but the, these women were the first ones to, witnesses to the resurrection. But also, already within the New Testament era, is what Lee Strobel would emphasize, uh, and, and others, that the Christian community is already giving an apologetic against, the claim that Jesus' body was stolen. So we'll we'll read that in Matthew 28, uh, 11 to 15. So why why don't we flip there? When someone gets there, you can read it out loud, nice and loud for us.
1: While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said... Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day.
0: And uh, just keep repeating this, but when engaging the the skeptic, the, the point is not that the Bible says so, therefore it happened, but simply that when the first generation of Christians were giving an apologetic for the resurrection, the the objection that they were trying to counter was not that Jesus he's dead in the grave. He, he would never uh, he's still there. What are you talking about? He's raised from the dead. the The objection, the counter narrative that they're facing is that his body was stolen. He wasn't really raised from the dead because his body was stolen, which is an implicit concession that what the tomb is empty. It's not there, and so the the first generation, the debate is how to account for the fact that the tomb is empty, not whether or not the tomb is empty, uh, not whether or not uh, a body, a dead corpse is still there. So that is significant because it lends credit to the idea that, that the tomb really was empty. And again, William Lane Craig always highlights, even the secular scholars agree, that this was the The reality that the tomb was empty even if they don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, just like the Jews didn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but they were proposing counter-narratives to combat the idea of what the the apostles were proclaiming so you have an an empty tomb, and lastly the eyewitnesses, and this is in my estimation the most significant part, and in most conversations, if I was just going to pick two I'd just go with the first one and the last one so, Jesus' closest friends, his followers, sincerely believed that Jesus appeared from them, and that he had risen from the dead. Uh, and one historical element is important to take note of, because within the Jewish worldview, uh, first century worldview, they, of course, believed that there would be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection... But that would be at the end of the age, the general resurrection. Like they, they didn't have any category for somebody dying and then rising from the dead in this life, in, in this space and time that they, they were waiting for the general resurrection. And we see that in the New Testament itself, uh, like when Lazarus died. Well, I know he will rise, you know, the end of the age, but they, they weren't imagining that anybody would rise from the dead in this life. And even the disciples, after Jesus is raised, still don't believe that he's risen from the dead. Well, I mean, when they, they see him and they have to get over their unbelief. So, uh, but I, I love this account. I think it's in, in Luke. So it says, But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And, and so, contrary to all their expectations that... Jesus would rise from the dead. They, in fact, came to be persuaded that he did. Uh, and, in fact, these disciples were so persuaded that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead and appeared to them that they were willing to suffer persecution. Uh, they were willing to even die for their faith. James, who is the brother of Jesus, not the James the Apostle we read about in, uh, in Scripture, uh, in the Gospels, but his brother that we do see there, uh, and he he doubted him throughout his ministry. Uh, his brothers did not believe in him. That, you know, you have that tense relationship between Jesus and his family throughout the Gospels. But we know from the book of Acts and also from history uh, that James became a believer in Christ. And not only did he become a believer, but he became a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And we, we read about his his execution in Acts 10, and also the histories of Josephus. is recorded there as well. So how did James go from being an unbeliever to being a willing martyr for the sake of the faith? And William Lane Craig always asked, what would it take for you to be persuaded that your, your brother was the Messiah and the Savior of the world? <laughs> It's because he believed, he was persuaded in his heart of hearts that Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to him uh, as risen from the dead. Uh, How did the Apostle Paul go from being the most ardent persecutor of Christianity to the most ardent proponent of it? Uh, It's because he was persuaded in his heart that Jesus Christ appeared to him risen from the dead, and he was so persuaded of that truth that he was willing to forsake everything that he had worked for his whole life, all the, his reputation in Judaism, uh, he was advancing beyond all his contemporaries uh, in, you know, Phariseeism, and he was willing to forsake all of that to live a life of constant suffering, constant persecution, and ultimately, uh, execution. And if someone keeps insisting, well, I just don't believe the Bible, I, I don't believe any of that, You can remind them that somebody really did write Romans. (laughs) Somebody really did write First and Second Corinthians. Somebody really did write all of these letters. And like this is somebody really did travel throughout Asia Minor propagating the faith of Christianity and planting churches uh, all over such that Christianity spread in the, the early Roman Empire. Like Christianity doesn't just appear out of a black hole, it doesn't fall out of the sky, nor does the Bible. Uh, it was written by real historical figures, uh, and one of them was Paul, whose life was radically transformed by the persuasion that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and appeared to him. Uh, and of course, that, that doesn't itself prove that it's true. But, you know, somebody might say, well, people lie all the time. You know, Who, who says that the apostles weren't just making it up and, and lying when they said these things? But the question is, would you personally be beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately, m- many of them die for a lie that you knew you made up? Uh, you know, it's one thing to die for something that you believe to be true, but you are deceived. People do that all the time. It's another thing to die for something that you know to be false. Like, that, that's just not how things work, <laughs> uh, but what we are being asked to believe uh, by the secular position is that the, either you know, the disciples all conspired together and they made up this fairy tale that Jesus was risen from the dead for the purpose of spending the rest of their life being persecuted and uh, imprisoned and martyred for the lie that they knew they made up. Like why, what would be the motivation for them to do that? You know, it's common for people to recant things and, and to lie about things that they do believe, so that they can avoid punishment uh, and consequences. But they don't do that for things that nobody dies for things that they know to be false. Uh, another option is that all the disciples began to hallucinate uh, and, and they imagined that they were seeing Jesus risen from the dead, uh, but they really weren't. And, you know, this is what a lot of scholars would believe, that they they were just hallucinating, that they they longed, they wanted Jesus to come back from the dead so much uh, that they had, you know, visions or hallucinations that that Jesus came back from the dead. Uh, And and they were genuinely persuaded. So they would affirm that they, they, these people were persuaded that Jesus was risen from the dead. And the way that they account for it often is by that maybe they, they had hallucinations or they had visions or dreams or something and they thought that Jesus was raised. But when we put all these together, we we might say concisely, you know, it's widely accepted and well attested that scholars uh, believe that Christian and non-Christian that Jesus was a historical person, that he was crucified on the cross under Pontius Pilate, that his tomb was found empty, uh, that his disciples believed that he appeared to them and proclaimed him to be risen from the dead and were willing to suffer and die for that conviction. And so the question is how do we what's the best way to account for those facts? H- how do we put that story together? Did they have a mass hallucination? Did they conspire together to make up a new religion so that they could spend the rest of their life suffering and dying for that conspiracy? I find it more Likely more <clears throat> rational, more persuasive to believe that Jesus actually did rise from the dead, that he really did, he is who he says he is, he did what he said he would do, uh, and that he did rise from the dead. And like I said, you're probably not going to have an extended option to, you know, walk through all of these things, uh, but maybe just the first and, and the last point that, that Jesus died. And that's clear. There's no debate about whether or not Jesus was a historical person, uh, whether or not he really died. And his disciples believed he was risen from the dead. One, why would they believe he's risen from the dead? And number two, what would account for not only his immediate disciples, but Paul. You have to account for Paul too. Because you have this guy who's not connected to the uh, early, I mean the earliest, He, he wasn't a follower of Christ throughout his earthly ministry. He was Violently opposed to Christianity and is radically transformed out of his life of persecuting Christianity to become the most ardent promoter of it. And how do, how do we put these together? And now, whether or not they find all that persuasive and compelling, uh, you know, I don't know. But if I had the opportunity, I would certainly add in these Old Testament promises and prophecies. Uh, I think I would be less persuaded. These. I find so persuasive uh, like these really add to the the authority and the, the compellingness of the account for me anytime you engage in these conversations like you've you got to know some of these texts like I, Isaiah 53 uh, is just so compelling it's incredible that this prophecy that was written uh, whether you take a evangelical dating that Isaiah lived you know 850 or It doesn't really matter, even if you take the secular dating that Isaiah was much later, it doesn't matter because it was before Christ, and it's clear because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and Isaiah is included in there. So there's no question about whether this is true prophecy that was before Christ. And we read in Isaiah 53, 3-6, this is a prophecy about the servant of the Lord who would come, uh, and Isaiah says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then, I, I go back all the way to Genesis twenty two eighteen, 18, uh, where kind of the, the series of, all, all these go together. Genesis, Isaiah 49, and Matthew 28. Uh, but, but God tells Abraham, you know, like thousands of years ago, that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So, you have this wandering pilgrim dude in the middle of nowhere, Middle East, that God says, through your offspring, there, there's going to be major inc- implications for the, the rest of the nations. I mean, what are the chances that anybody's offspring would have significant worldwide, global implications for the whole world? That, that their, one of their children would shape human history? Uh, and, and this is something that's given to this guy who's a no one in nowhere. You know, thousands of years ago, literally. And, and then we read similarly in Isaiah 49.6. Again, talking about this, this servant of the Lord. And we, we get this building uh, more and more information about who he is and what he's going to do. And Isaiah 40, nine six says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Uh, And so, again, all the way back hundreds of years in in Judaism, you have a global view that this this servant of the Lord is going to come through him. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Through him, salvation is going to go to the nations. Uh, This is a global thing. What other group of people in the Middle East from 850 BC have had any sort of impact like that on the globe? Do you know anything about the the Parasites or the... I mean, all all the surrounding people groups. I mean, they would have been lost in the annals of history if it were not for the Bible. Uh, The only reason we know anything about any of these peoples uh, is because of the Bible, really. And, And then... You get to Jesus' life where he says the, the marching orders for his disciples when there's, what, uh, I mean, technically 12 of them, but more broadly, we know in the upper room there's 120 of them. I mean, but it's just a very small, nothing, not even a movement. I mean, it's, it's nothing. And he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. and And this happens. <laughs> like... It happens, not only did they, God said it would happen over and over again, but but then it comes to pass, and now, uh, at least in name, nominally, Christianity is the the largest, most global religion. There is not a country on this earth where Jesus is not worshipped as Lord. Like, how does that happen by chance, number one, even without the prophecy, but... The fact that it was prophesied, so, so even just in terms of, it would be definitely something to take note of. I, it wouldn't be as compelling to me, but it would be something I would take note of to simply see that, oh, this man has uh, exerted a tremendous amount of influence on the world. So, like, well, what's, what's going on here? But then the fact that this was prophesied beforehand, and then that Jesus said it would happen in his own life, Uh, that this is what is going to (laughs) happen. God was confirming his word from, you know, 4,000 years ago to this random pilgrim sojourner in the Middle East. Uh, And then through Isaiah, 2,800 years ago, telling him what the servant of the Lord would do. And then this person comes, this person in history and says, claims to be that servant of the Lord. And then he makes good on all the things that God said was going to happen. Like, I just can't believe that that happens without the, the hand of God behind him. And uh, that that would be coincidence. So for him to claim to be that person, and then for him to actually make good on all the things, uh, and exert a kind of influence upon the globe that nobody else in all of history has exerted, uh, to me that's beyond belief. Because th- there are have been other Messiah figures in early, around that time in uh, Judaism, but guess what? none of them made good on the problem, none of them willingly and voluntarily suffered on the cross in perfect fulfillment of isaiah forty fifty three and none of them became a light to the nations where he was they were globally worshipped and received as Lord and savior so when I bring these into the discussion, to me, I find it much more compelling because it it 's very clear that it this is Fulfilled prophecy of, of the clearest order. And I'll be totally honest, there are some prophecies in Scripture that are fulfilled in Christ that I think as an unbeliever, I'd be like, well, in the original context, it's not talking about a Messiah figure. It's We have to amend the way that we think and read Scriptures as Westerners to understand how the biblical authors are thinking. But these ones, like Isaiah 53, Isaiah 49, Genesis 22, it's very clearly talking about... There is going to be a, a figure who's going to come and he's going to do these things. The Lord's going to raise him up and light, salvation, uh, and blessing is going to come from him. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, and it's just as Jesus claimed it would be and just as the Word of God claims. Is there any like leading counter-arguments for that? Like people saying the prophecy is not true or that Jesus didn't die in that way? Because or... I mean, it, pretty, it seems pretty rock-solid as far as... Like historical evidence of Jesus and then the Dead Sea Scrolls are obviously pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. Like how do you deny the connection there? Yeah. I, I, you know, I haven't... Ironically, I, I don't hear... I've listened to a good amount of debates. For some reason, they, they never talk about Isaiah 53. I'm like, why don't you guys talk about Isaiah 53? Like, this is... this is, You know, and who signs up for that? Who, who's like, oh, I'll, I'll be the guy who fulfills Isaiah 53. Um... You know, I want to be that person um, if they are just from a, you know, secular point of view. Like, who's coming and claiming to be that servant of the Lord? Nobody. Nobody's doing that voluntarily. But, so I I don't know what the most common objections are or or what people typically say, to be honest. Johnny? Just real quick. I I think it's important to remember, too, going
1: back to the disciples. um, I I don't know. I can say it after. I didn't realize. Are you, are you close?
0: Yeah, oh, yeah you go, go for it. Um,
1: they weren't even at the point of wanting to believe in Christ anymore. Like, mm-hmm. Some of them flat out rejected Christ. And, you know, they they were... They, they didn't really... You know, they lost faith in Him because mm-hmm. they died. And so, mm-hmm. even before they would get to that point of, well, let's figure out how we can make this seem true, that, you know, they, they could have just floated under the radar and gone on with their lives. Mm-hmm. You know? They... They, they really didn't have any motivation to to would wouldn't have had any mo- motivation to pursue that so. mm-hmm. to make it all up. Uh, yeah. So. Why would you want to make it all up, knowing what was coming? Yeah. <laughs> like knowing the threats that were against you. Yeah. No, I was just kidding.
0: Any yeah. any other thoughts or?
1: You mentioned the people groups that we haven't heard. There, the Assyrians are still around yet, but they're yeah. all Christians. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. There are bigger. Of course, we we read about. Uh, Egyptians and Assyrians and but but there's there are little people groups uh, like around, I'm thinking around Abraham's time um, that like I, I've never heard anybody talk about the Edomites or, you know I mean that that's not Abraham technically, it's later, but anyways alright yeah, Shechem, that's a good one uh, the Shechemites, you, you don't hear them on CNN um well, <laughs> Yeah, the Jebusites, the Shechemites, the Perizzites. uh, Anyways, those are the the kinds of things I was thinking of. But anyways, we'll we'll pray. Lord, we thank you so much that your word is reliable and trustworthy, that you have uh, fulfilled your promises, uh, that the promise you made thousands of years ago to Abraham, who is uh, a no-one wandering through the Middle East, that, that from his offspring would come one in whom the nations would be blessed. And you told Isaiah that there would be a suffering servant that would bear our sins and he'd be crushed for our iniquities and that through him you would raise up a light to the nations that salvation might reach the ends of the earth. And Lord, you've done it. You've done it. We are evidence of it today. Uh, Our very gathering is fulfillment of your word. Uh, And so, Lord, we worship you as the one who has uh, all authority and, and power in heaven and on earth. And we pray that you would help us to, to be faithful in joining in what you're doing and making disciples of all nations, that your, the light of Christ may go forth into the nations, into uh, reading into the, the little corners of our communities and neighborhoods, uh, that people might know Christ and worship him as king. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.